Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. I'm Dr. Alice Evans, and today I'm joined by Professor Branko Milanovic, world-leading expert on economic inequality. Today we're discussing his book, Capital Alone. Branko, you are very welcome. Thank you very much, Alice. It's really a pleasure always to be with you and to be in London. Okay, so Branko, today I want to grill you on the three biggest challenges of our time. I think how we respond to rising inequality, xenophobia and climate breakdown. But before we do that, I thought we could take a little <laughs> historical detour to discuss the world historic role of communism. Could you share your argument with us? Yes, that's actually a, a part of the book which deals with China. And originally when I wrote that uh, sort of global historical role of communism, I thought of this as being a, a separate small book because I never, I, I just could not carry it for to a great length. And then I actually realized that it really fits extremely well with the chapter of China. So let me explain first what it is and then I will try to make a case why it fits well with China. Uh, the argument was the following is that I was wondering, in, well, can we now, after the end of communism, and that has been now only, I mean, already 30 years, and including in China, which has been transformed to de facto capitalist country, can we say what was, if any, role of communism? In other words, there is one possibility to say, well, it just happened because there are different circumstances which led to that, and uh, it led to a cul-de-sac for many of the countries. Their growth rate maybe in the beginning was reasonably good, but of course then sort of started sputtering and really declined. On the top of that, there were of course civil wars, because in no country, practically no country did communism come simply or easily. I think the, <laughs> the, the only country where actually it came with the majority of the world which was Czechoslovakia where the government was formed. But then they, of course, made a, the so it's called uh, self-coup by getting rid of everybody else. So anyway, so that was my question. And uh, I thought that, that when we look at the history of the 20th century, neither liberals, very strict liberal narrative, nor communist narrative, Marxist narrative, are able to propose or to give really a sort of a simple explanation of what happened. For the uh, liberal narrative, I think the main problem, and I've sort of written a recent paper with Suresh Naidu and Thomas Hauner about that, was inability to really explain the outbreak of World War I because we would have expected, as we do expect now with globalization and actually much more interchange and trade, that these would be the, the, the reasons why the war should not break out between the major powers. So that was the, in summary, that was the problem with liberal. Now, the problem with communist, of course, appro or Marxist approach was that it could not understand the fall of communism because, mm. of course, communism was the highest system that we achieved. So going back really to capitalism is really uh, absolutely mm. impossible mm. within that framework. Mm. So then I, what was my argument is that actually it is impossible because our framework was very much dominated not entirely, but much dominated mm. with what I call Western path to development, which mm -hmm. saw the typical Marxist succession of the different stages. Now, as we know, Marx also thought that that succession made sense. And that's where actually now imperialism plays, in my opinion, a very key role. I will try to, to sort of abridge my sort of description because we can go on for a long time. Imperialism plays a key role because the original Marxist approach to colonialism was positive because they saw colonialism as bringing capitalist relations to production mm -hmm. and hence, in some future, leading to socialist revolution. Mm -hmm. And as we have this quote from Marx, which from the uh, preface to the critique of political economy, where he says, 
really the poor or uh, less advanced countries in those days I think they were called the backward countries and so mm -hmm. on were simply uh, sort of several steps behind the most advanced countries so the more advanced countries really showing the way to the other one how it, it would develop mm. The thing is that historically, if capitalism had indeed been sufficiently powerful through imperialism mm. to really transform these countries mm. into capitalist mm. countries, that imperialist view of Marxism would actually be correct. The fact is that actually capitalism was not sufficiently, in my opinion, strong to transform those countries, very often used the previous relations of production like feudalism and slavery to actually become sort of to make more money, essentially, mm -hmm. or to enslave people. So then I, I thought that actually the interpretation of the role of communism in the colonized and less developed societies was that the communist parties, which actually started having an anti-imperialist approach, only from uh, 1920, 1920 to 25, after the Russian Revolution, because before that, I was, as I was saying before, mm -hmm. it was pro-imperialist approach. So then they started having an anti-imperialist approach, where they essentially argued that whoever within their own countries is supporting anti-imperialism is thereby to some extent supporting the socialist revolution or communist revolution. And the argument was, my argument was that it, it was only possible for such parties like the Chinese, Vietnamese, and, and you can go on further, mm, Ethiopia mm, or Angola mm. and so on, in colonized societies or de facto colonized societies, uh, and poor societies to effect two revolutions because really what was needed mm. is, is a double revolution. It was social revolution to get rid of all feudal, uh, you know, sort of impediments to growth or simply tying of, tying of people to land or gender inequality or inability to go to school and all these other things. Plus the second revolution was the re nationalist revolution uh, which really needed to end colonialism. And just to conclude, that in that sense, if this is the case, and that was my argument, mm. if this is the case, then only type of centralized parties, which are communist parties, were able to do that because they really combined these two ideologies very well, mm -hmm. better than anybody else. And that distinguishes the Western path of development in, in Marxism, where actually you never had to face other oppressor or colonial power to get rid of. You only had social revolution from the countries which were controlled by foreigners, which had to face this double revolution. So that was essentially, in a nutshell, my argument, and thereby I defined uh, communism as a system that actually functionally performed the same role that bourgeoisie performed in Western countries, getting rid of all the sort of bad institutions for economic growth. Later, and this is kind of a cunning of history, later, for various reasons, they kind of realized, and I think China is a very clear example, and that's why it was a very good introductory chapter to China, realized that these institutions, communist institutions, were not providing the type of growth that they needed. So the cunning of history was to have led them to create indigenous, autochthonous uh, bourgeoisie, and to actually have sort of indigenous capitalism. So the argument to conclude is that in that sense, or communist revolutions were actually a step before, historically or chronologically, before capitalism. 
So it was not the ultimate result towards which society or humanity is tending. It was, uh, as I said before, a functional equivalent to, the bourgeois, to a bourgeois revolution in the context of colonial, poor and colonial or colonialist societies. So that was sort of a long answer to your question, but that was basically the idea which I had there, and that's why it was important for me to introduce that idea and to explain it by then leading to the discussion of China and political capitalism. Right, I'm with you. So if I crudely summarize, it's that in sort of formerly third world countries, communism abolished feudalism and enabled indigenous capitalism. Absolutely, that's exactly okay. so. Yeah. Now, for me, if I wanted to test that argument empirically, I'd want to look at the entire sample of, say, formerly third world countries and compare the performance of those that were communist and non-communist. You know, maybe I'd do a cross-country regression. Why, I, I was curious, why the book, why don't you do a regression? But let me tell you, there mm. are actually two parts to this mm. argument. Mm. One argument, and that's also a little bit in the book, is the issue, was communism good for growth and where it was mm. good and where it was mm. bad and mm. so on. That, I think, is, is a separate argument from the, the, the one that I was just sketching before. The, the argument that I was sketching before on the global historical role of communism is simply an argument that says that's how capitalism came to China or to Vietnam, or that's what. So, so it's I not only an argument like that it would be a very successful outcome. It is how communism played a role to bring capitalism to China. So you're not making any roles, uh, you're not making any arguments about the effect of communism generally. It's only about China and Vietnam, because I, I interpreted yeah. the book as making a grander claim, saying that communism abolishes feudalism the world over. And no, no, I agree with you. No, I make this great grand argument. Mm. China and Vietnam are my mm. best examples. Yes. I make it also... And there. so the reason I'm pushing yes. back, Branko, the reason I'm pushing back is I t I'm totally with mm. you on those two nice examples. Perfect. But I w I'm interested in, say, average effects if we're making the global right, argument. Right. And I think there's a danger, perhaps, of cherry-picking because I can pick up some alternative arguments. So, for example, was communism mm. necessary to land reform? No, I mean, it was sort of, you know, mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. the war, we saw it across the right, world. Right. Taiwan had indigenous right. land reform. Japan, South Korea, I could go on. Second, Secondly, was abolishing feudalism is necessary for indigenous capitalism? Let me look at uh, Bangladesh, for example. The mm -hmm, garment mm -hmm. exports, that's not dominated by FDI. That is indigenous capitalism thriving. Mm -hmm. You know, Bangladesh's exports of garments are doing terrifically well. But they is Bangladesh a feudal country? Well, they, I would say they're still... Wouldn't you say? Because you're saying that community is necessary to abolish caste hierarchy. I mean, look, okay, no. caste hierarchies in India. You've got indigenous capitalism in India, right. notwithstanding caste hierarchy. No, India, okay, wait, wait, no, 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 wait, wait. India is a good, a good mm, counterexample, okay, okay. not fully. But India, of course, took, uh, took like 70 years mm. to do what China did in 20 years. Now, I'm not talking only about rate of growth. I think about the abolishment, and it has not abolished. It has mm. not abolished mm. caste system. It has not abolished But also they still have indigenous capitalism, so notwithstanding yes, feudalism, yes, so you yes. don't need the communists. And then my other concern is that even if we say that communism isn't, if you don't, even if you, so one, I don't think abolishing mm. feudalism is a necessary condition for uh, indigenous capitalism, and two, I don't even know if it's a sufficient condition. I mean, look at all those formerly communist countries which abolish feudalism mm -hmm. and still are what trapped in sort of lower middle income country 
Yes, but okay. That, that, that's let me go back to another example. So this example. is why I want my regression. This no, is no. what I want my regression to. You know, if we're going to test your claim, if we're going to make big claims about the world, we need to know about no, average that, effects. So do a regression no, for no, me, Brian. No, 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 no. There is actually a regression. Other people have done it, and actually, it is in, in there was a graph with regression. So what that regression shows, mm. it's I think very clearly. But it was done on European countries, so China and Vietnam are not there. So, but we, a, if you're making a global claim, we need to do no, a global no, regression. I, I, no, the, the global don't, regression don't should. Miss do, fancy but it's football. not. No, it's not the issue of rate, and you should not put rate of growth there. All right, what do you want? Put anything you want. My, the, the, the argument is that actually the communism in those countries, the poor countries, the mm-hmm. colonized countries, was necessary to actually bring capitalism. So basically, your regression, if you want to do it, that's maybe that's a good idea. Your regression is to put to take all the countries mm-hmm. that were colonized at yes. a given point in time, and actually to then define how, however you want, institutions which are growth retarding, and to see if these growth retarding institutions have been abolished more successfully in countries like China, Vietnam, uh, Angola, Ethiopia and so on. Well, I and don't there mind, you I can do... put for example gender inequality. But or inequality. But my, so my... it's not only growth. But yeah, I'm sure yeah. you can put whatever dependent yes. variable you like. All I want to do is let's look at the entire sample and let's compare okay. the performance. That's but that's I'm why I wrote that so actually that people like you have something else to do now. Because without <laughs> that, <laughs> what, what oh, would you do? Thank you, Branko. Thank you, Branko. What would you do? Now you have a regression you have a dependent variable independent variable just do it but before you do that let me just tell you on taiwan please please taiwan i don't think it's a very you don't think persuasive it's indigenous argument land no it is indigenous land reform it's mm. indigenous capitalism and everything mm. else but it is in they have done all of that simply because they lost power in China and they lost the power in China because they didn't do any of that in China. Once they realized, because they were obviously not so stupid not to realize, so they did these policies in Taiwan precisely because they didn't do them in China and lost the civil war. On top of that, obviously, there was a U.S. pressure to do things that to actually land reform actually happened all over. I mean, it's a large part Minimal of the Minimal U.S. Ball. influence in Taiwan, no? Well, I mean, Taiwan was basically under the, the U.S. Uh, nuclear but umbrella. But I basically agree that indigenous, you know. it was, land reform so, was indigenous in Taiwan, right? No, but anyway, 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 I don't want to... It is them who are doing it, but they did it because they lost in China. Uh, so my argument was, to put it crudely also, mm-hmm. my argument was, had they won in China, they would have done none of what they did in Taiwan. You see, that's the difference. Well, so my, my pushback is only that I think... You can cherry pick these cases like China. I want to know about glo- if you're making a global claim, we need to have the global set of regressions. But we, I, I, okay, it's like a 15 <laughs> countries. It's not the cherry picking. You know, it's 15 countries there, and some of them are pretty big. The, I, I would say that if you really wanted to to um, sort of uh, go after that, obviously regression mm-hmm. is one way. But I think it's actually case studies uh, of two other countries that have okay. not done that. I will suggest India you know, and mm. Indonesia. Mm-hmm. So there are interesting cases. Of course, Indonesia was a country which had very strong Communist Party and eventually, of course, led to the coup and to the liquidation of, of Communist Party and all of that. But there are two interesting cases, you know, which are uh, different from Philippines, where, of course, the American influence was very, very significant and so on. So if I were really to write something uh, to questioning my thesis, I would use really Indonesia and India. Okay, thank you. But I would not do that because, obviously... Uh, that, that's uh, you know, like the French say, la peine perdue, because it's actually the thesis must be correct. Okay, right. <laughs> right now, now I want to move on. I want to uh, fast forward to present day rising income inequality and wealth inequality. So, um, 
You say that we cannot reduce inequality through incremental policies, and I totally agree. I'm entirely with you. So you advocate for the decompression of capital and skills inequality. So I think I really interpret it as creating equality of opportunity. Yeah. You know, provide more funding for schools, end tax exemptions for endowments right. of top universities, taxation, etc. Right? Have I got that right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and so here's my... Oh, and... um. Allow the middle classes to speculate right. in financial markets. Not speculate, just have, you know... Inve- make the, investments. Yeah, maybe, yeah, buy make stocks investments. and shares. That's right. Yeah. Right, okay. So here's my concern. Is that really enough to reduce, to, to quickly and radically reduce inequality? So here are my concerns. One, yeah. most people lack the skills to outcompete the markets. Very few people outperform the market. Two, we know, comparing across mm-hmm. countries, that if you look at uh, government spending on school, that's not, it's only weakly positively associated with better learning outcomes. And so I just want, you know, and ending tax exemptions on endowments is pretty mild. So I just sort of wonder why you've been, why, why these policy recommendations, to me, they seem quite centrist, quite mild, whereas, mm. where, and, and I just wonder if it's enough. Mm. So for me, whereas if I look at the current left-wing agenda in the US, for example, I see Bernie Sanders, I see Elizabeth Warren, and then academics like Danny Roderick, they're saying it's not enough to equalise endowments and then it's not enough to allow people to compete in the market economy. We've got to recognise that it's root. So instead, we've got to start talking about strengthening workers' power. We've got to... Yeah, the, people yeah. talk about wage mandates, banning the right-to-work laws, require co-determination, uh, ending the... Mis- you know, so... Uh, Uber and Lyft, you know, those workers are classified as independent contractors. So they don't have any of those kind of labor protections. Domestic workers, farm workers in many U.S. states lack any kind of protections. And for me, the concern, the concern there is unless you build workers collective power, one is you don't see any immediate improvement. So, Madeline, let's talk about a domestic worker in the USA. She's earning, say, $20,000 uh, a year, she's living in poverty in a you know shanty tenement building. You know what good is it for her if her son's school gets slightly better teaching? How does that get her out of the poverty trap? And so I just feel that I, I was just so surprised. And, and and so one is, what's the immediate benefit for her? I think wealth inequality will persist. You know she certainly lacks the capital to buy stocks mm. and shares. And so you know maybe something will change in twenty years' time, but she's got no benefit today. And and for me the other concern, if we don't strengthen workers' collective power, I look at what happened in, in Chile and in Brazil. So there we had a sort of you know the. The Workers' Party in Brazil, they, they had these mechanisms, you know, taxes, transfers, spending on education. And what happened? Without strengthening, without harnessing the power of labour, without harnessing the power of labour and strengthening the, worker, uh, the power of labour, there was a lack of mobilisation from the marginalised masses and you had elite backlash. Because, of course, you will have elite backlash to any kind of redistributive agenda. And so the Workers' Party got voted out of office. So, so my, my questions are really threefold. No, One, are these policy recommendations enough? Two, aren't we missing out on this window of opportunity mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. the left is so much more advanced than what I see in these sort of centrist? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Branko, when I read your book, I was like, what is this? You know, Brad Delaney of 1996 could have written this. <laughs> is that unfair? No, he would not have written that. <laughs> really? Okay, uh, why would but, you disagree? Uh, uh, but, uh, okay, so what's the third question? Okay, yes, yeah, so, my, so my two questions. One is... Investing in human capital, improving schooling, maybe you can have better outcomes in 20 years' time. You know, all these things, I just, 
the poor domestic okay. worker she she lacks the skills yeah, to yeah. invest no, in no, stocks I, and yeah. shares and you don't and you're not strengthening workers collective power so they lack the capacity either individually or collectively to resist okay. corporate takeovers no you have lots of questions let me then do the same thing that they did with global role of communism yeah, yeah. i have really first to set the framework okay. and then let's go and discuss individual okay, things okay, okay. i'm not by the way against any of the things that you have mentioned but okay. i want to actually argue and this is i think argued in the book that the framework that we have to have in the 21st century for advanced countries mm. has to be different from the framework of the 20th century because of globalization technological change mm. different mm. nature mm. of work the end of mm. this mm. Mm. so things that would actually lead to a reduction of inequality today for example like you know very high marginal tax rates or maybe even sort of uh, 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 plateauing or ma maximizing total incomes you know there were proposals of that I'm all in favor of that but mm. and they would actually lead very quickly to some results mm. you know I'm not sure always how good results but some results mm. but they would actually stay within that paradigm of the 20th century where you had welfare state which actually essentially redistributes the created income between those who actually have more and those who have less but I think that and I will explain that in, in later you know why I think that paradigm is no longer sufficient to deal with the current problems So my approach there is to have a different vision. We mm -hmm. had a vision of a welfare state, which was actually guaranteeing minimal income and was actually a beautiful book by, by Avner Offer and Sands, uh, Sandberg. On, it's called The Noble Factor, but it's really the, the, the history of social democracy. Mm -hmm. And uh, ensuring all the uh, ensuring income in all the um, sort of occurrences where you actually don't have an income, whether it is unemployed or you're old or young or whatever. In the new, in the different vision of, of the 21st century, uh, I think we have to actually say our objective is what I call, you know, people's capital. Yes, yes. Our objective is to deal with endowments. Mm -hmm. So that technically, I mean, at some very mm -hmm. utopistic future, the endowments may be pretty equally distributed, meaning your skill level, because I don't like, as you know, the term human capital, so your skill level will be pretty equally distributed, and your command over financial assets and housing would mm -hmm. be pretty equally mm -hmm. distributed. In a, such a society, the amount of redistributions that you have to undertake and particularly in a globalization which actually limits what you can do with taxation, would be relatively limited because you would simply have assets or endowments of people which would not differ as much as they are differing now. So this is a really a different vision. And, and that vision, by definition, is a vision which talks about 20 years or 40 years. But that was, I think, the vision towards which we should go. A society of equals. It means equals in terms of skills and in terms of access to capital. But, Branko, yes. so I'm totally yes, with you. Okay. I want to equalize endowments, so I'm not pushing but for you the welfare have, state. Yes, okay. I'm not pushing, yeah. so, you know, to say that we're no longer living in the welfare state of old, I don't want that either. So I'm totally with you, let's equalize endowments. But my question, Branko, is why is there this conception of a sort of technocratic state? I think in order to equalize endowments, you need to strengthen and harness the collective power of labor. So if we look at Uruguay, the state has intervened to protect and strengthen And labor uh, to strengthen and you know, I think that's essential for any kind of leftist project okay but the examples that you have given all of them mm -hmm. actually uh, Brazil 
Chile, Uruguay, mm. are the examples of not really the most advanced countries. Okay. I believe that the nature of labor, and that's why I'm very skeptical, mm-hmm. I'm actually in favor of labor having capital, but I am skeptical about their, our ability to actually uh, uh, um, reinforce or to strengthen the power of la- bargaining power of labor. I think that the bargaining power of labor has become weaker in advanced yes. countries because of globalization, because of an inflow of about 2 billion or whatever number mm-hmm. of people from former communist countries, from China, from India, which was not integrated. So the ratio between capital and labor has dramatically changed a ratio between capital and labor involved in capitalist production has changed. Now, in 100 years or 50 years, the ratio might change in favor of labor because we would actually have fewer people and much more capital. But I don't think that actually in most advanced societies where the nature of production mm-hmm. has changed mm-hmm. and where the relationship in power in the bargaining between capital and mm-hmm. labor have mm-hmm. fundamentally changed, that reinforcement of labor power per se is going to give us very much. Okay, so so this is why, that's why skepticism comes. The second part of, of co-determination skepticism comes from my experience from labor management. Because I, I think actually that gives to people, and you might have read my blog, gives the people really democratic say in decision making. However, that democratic say in decision making leads oftentimes to total lack of reaction when decisions need to be taken. So I'm not very much in favor of that. So there are two reasons why I, I put like a, a strengthening of labor power on the back burner in what I'm doing. Okay, so your argument is that globalization inevitably weakens unions, so it should not be a priority. We should recognise that they're going to be weaker. Um, so let me push back, Branko, <laughs> if I may. I think that in, 2018, did, so. <laughs> in 2018, we saw a surge of worker stoppages. So, for example, and you may be right, Branko, that globalisation has undermined the capacity of manufacturing workers to organise. Yeah. But what about service workers? So, for example, if we look at the Red for Ed campaign in Arizona, Oklahoma, Kentucky, all these states, we had um, education educators pushing for a higher minimum, pushing for a higher wage in those red states, and they secured a higher wage. And, Branko, they did something that you would have liked. They got higher funding for schools. They got higher public funding through going well, on strikes, right? Through going illegal on strikes. The workers, okay. the workers, were key to getting that going. So that's one example. Um, then but let I, me give you No, 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 no. Okay. Let me continue. Let me continue, Ranko. Okay. okay, so that is service workers okay. uh, mobilizing, getting a higher wage, better, more spending on education. Two, let me give me... Right, so we're right now at uh, KCL. You know, a lot of our... Um, Domestic workers, the people who clean our buildings, they were all outsourced, you know, contractors. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, of course. And they, and they, were, getting, yeah. and they were getting below yeah, the living right. wage, I below know, the yeah. living wage bankers. Right. You know, these people are the, yeah. poorest, the poorest in our society, right. struggling with really high, high rents in London. And what did they do? They organised, they formed the Independent uh, Worker uh, Union of Great Britain. They organised, mm-hmm. they got a living wage, and now we, they're no longer subcontracted. So they're getting, they're getting entitlements, they're getting labour rights, and that's an immediate, that's an immediate improvement in their incomes yeah. through organizing so yeah tell me what to, i totally no, no. see your point on manufacturing but i'm saying a large part of the economy they're still service workers and through service workers organizing they can get better immediate benefits now rather than in 40 years time no i totally agree with you that actually every of these organizations organizing is going to improve and maybe have an Im- improved mm-hmm. the position of workers mm-hmm. and might even not might but is very likely to have direct significant effect mm. on their sort of position, income and so forth. Mm. What I'm saying, and actually since you challenged me 
to do the data work on global, you know, global role of communism. Mm-hmm. I challenge you to do the data work on this one. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. level of strike and worker activity today compared to what it was in the 1960s and the 1970s, forget about 1920s and 1930s, mm-hmm. is a fraction of that. Yes, of course. So you just do a graph of that, strikes, yeah. days lost due mm-hmm. to strike. It's like nothing. And so, you know, when you cherry pick this association service workers here and there, yes, they do think things and it's very desirable and it's fine with me but to accept to to expect that this is going to be an answer to what trade unions have done with in combining themselves with social democratic parties and taking actually power of being first actually not legalized then secondly legalized and actually having really trouble coming to power it's really i think totally different order of magnitude so you can have small improvements and i'm all in favor of them but i don't think you can have a vision of a society which my opinion makes sort of is strong to say well we will just keep on organizing you know five guys in Arizona two associations in Utah and several people in in Paris no it will not work all right Branko so you accuse me of cherry picking oh no you were the first (laughs) (laughs) okay but Branko so let's look at the structural drivers of the reduction in work stoppages. And I absolutely yeah. agree that globalization undermines manufacturers' workers. But I resist your idea, I resist your contention that <laughs> worker stoppages are only falling uh, because of globalization. And I'm saying there are other causes besides globalization, and that's the incredibly labor-oppressive laws. <laughs> so, for example, in the USA at the moment, it's illegal for federal workers to go on strike. So there are all sorts of barriers and obstacles to forming a union. And I'm saying, and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, all these people are saying, well, let's remove some of those restrictions. So yes, yes, union activity is hard. No one's going to deny that. But it's currently stacked against them. So let's yeah. at least remove some of those restrictions. Let's make it easier to I'm not in, in favor or, of okay. restrictions. I totally agree with okay. that. Well, I actually together, agree with all of, the, all of the arguments that you have given. Mm. I, I disagree with these arguments put together, make a new vision. I think that they are actually improvements on the edges. So they are really not going to do much of a difference. they make much of a difference. Mm. So, but then uh, on, uh, on trade unions. Mm. Uh, you're giving the example of the United States, but there are other countries where trade unions are also on, on the decline. Mm-hmm. Actually, there is no OECD country where trade unions in the private sector are not on the decline. So when you look Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Germany, you know, they were the exemplars of trade unions. Even there, the trade unions are on the decline. The only places, and actually they are on a less of a decline, maybe they're somewhere there like on the same level, are the trade unions in the, in the government, in the state sector. So we have this paradoxical situation that the trade unions which have been created and actually first were banned and you could not even join trade union was to fight with private employers for better conditions. Mm. But where now we see them most, we see them actually fighting against the state. Because that's where the, the, you know, the, the health workers, the education workers, they have their little bit old-fashioned in the sense. They have same interests like pensioners have. It's a very single interest that they have. They are together and they are really uh, behaving themselves like the unions used to be. But when you have people broken up in small uh, units, working on, a, on jobs, on jobs mm-hmm. which are actually not, not durable mm-hmm. and uh, uh, sort of being connected remotely with other people, it's much more difficult to create trade unions. So I think there is a fundamental structural reason why the trade unions are declining. I'm going to push back again, Bernard. Okay. okay. So I think two things. One, 
that, yes, I'm not going to disagree. Trade union activity has been on the decline. and But then we can reply, well, how do we respond to that? Do we just take it as given, shrug? No, we can push for a change in laws to strengthen um, labour organisations. And secondly, there's something which I like to call the... And I don't want to no. use this as an opportunity to promote my own theory, but let me digress. No, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to call it the despondency trap. Mm-hmm. And that term is actually from Pseudo Erasmus. He came up with that oh, term. Oh, really? Yeah, Despond- yeah. In, uh, explain can, the despondency. Oh, so, okay. yeah. so the idea is if we never mm-hmm. see radical reform, mm-hmm. we lower our expectations. And instead mm-hmm. of pushing for something really radical, we moderate our ambitions and we sort of go along with the status quo. Because can you change the term? Despond- Could it be a Lenin uh, trap? <laughs> we can call it whatever you like. Right? It is a Leninist trap because so long as we don't have a radical revolution, we really lower our expectation, and so we actually go lower and lower. And we, so we have to have a radical revolution. So we. Okay. So the problem is, but I don't think that the radical revolution has a low likelihood of happening because if people never see radical reform, they don't invest in it, and so no one ever sees anything radical. So we get stuck in this bad equilibrium, and that's a negative feedback loop, and so. The question is, well, how do, how do we change that? And I don't know whether that negative feedback loop is an inevitable consequence of globalization because I think it can be changed. And let me give you just a cherry-picked yeah, example. Yeah. So, uh, last year... You're like year. Z- uh, Lenin in Zurich in 1915, <laughs> really. <laughs> I'm not against that, actually, but I'm just saying it's really the same argument. Okay, so, Branko, yeah. last, uh, last year uh, in UK universities we had a discussion about our pensions where mm-hmm, they wanted mm-hmm. to reduce re- reduce our, their the employers wanted to reduce our pension contributions and we contested the empirics of this and so we all went on strike and it was the biggest uh, strike in U- UK higher education for many for several decades and it was phenomenal you know we were all out on the streets there was a uh, 3000 people marching to Pall Mall and it was phenomenal because for decades we'd sort of thought that we can't change anything. These universities are just this big machine and we just have to take it. We have to cede to the, cede to the machine. But then, you know, through, through Twitter and sharing pictures and realising the strength, you know, being out on the picket line, we realised our collective strength. And I think many people became emboldened and they realised that we don't have to just take this sort of neoliberalisation of higher education, this erosion of pensions, this precarious pay that we see in academia that actually we can contest it. And then this year, we've uh, elected a much more left-wing president uh, you know, on the back of that trade union activity that led people to think, hey, we can change things. You know, our trade union president now, Joe Grady, she's a much more leftist agenda. So my argument there is it's not a sort of material forces, but also our perceptions. And we can change... Agency. Yes, yes, yeah, Franco. Okay, yeah, and yeah. I know you like the sort of impersonal forces of yeah, history. Okay, <laughs> but no, so, so Branko, I want to push back onto that. That's not a cherry-picked example, but that's just an example of how if you have this big strike, workers can recognise their power can contest. I don't know if you've read um, Hagen Koo. He's got a brilliant book on Korean workers. Mm-hmm. And it's similarly like, or similar to E.P. Thompson, you know, going on strike. Yeah, yeah. Workers recognise their sure, capacity yeah, yeah, that, to contest. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that raises their aspirations, that emboldens them, it encourages further unionisation. And so that's why I'm not at all sceptical of Bernie Sanders' idea to double trade union uh, rates within his first term. No, let, let's agree that actually that we, we, we just... <laughs> There are parts that we agree and the parts we don't agree. Mm. The parts that we agree is that actually I think that each of these incremental and small things that you advocate... Oh my God, <laughs> you are the incremental small things, Franco! Oh, you are... <laughs> each of these small incremental things is desirable. Franco, I resist! I resist! <laughs> Why are you 
sorry, do it now. When you are the you are the centrist Franco, I am the one on the left. Uh, no, no, but all these small incredible. I mean, uh, small, uh, no, they are desirable. So we agree on that. Yeah, we all agree. When we don't, the, uh, when we disagree, is actually that uh, the belief that that such changes under the current conditions, which are objectively given by technological change, mm-hmm. by globalization, are going to produce a big picture change. That's where I think we disagree. Uh, let's agree on this, that we disagree okay. on this. All right, all because right. you really believe, I'm not going to use these words again, mm. but you believe that agency, let's put it neutrally, that agency applied today is able to really recreate society significantly or to change this picture. I believe that the agency within the current conditions is going only to make small changes and what we need a different vision where that particular agency is useful but it's not going to be the key changing factor would you agree with this Franco we will park it we will park it and I will move on I will move on to my second topic Franco so third I thought no 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 that that was the second no no no, yeah yeah, third 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 right so move on to my third so immigration wow this is going to be difficult (laughs) okay Okay, we haven't even got to climate breakdown. I've not even started yet, Branko. No, no, I mean, you first accused me of being centrist. Uh, so now with immigration, you're going to accuse me of being right-wing. So, I mean, I see the, uh, the, the movement from left to right. Yeah, then I'll get to climate Gradual, breakdown, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so your book recognizes the economic benefits of migration. Yes, absolutely. But you raise concerns about backlash, which I don't disagree with. Uh, and you say there's this inherent contradiction in generous welfare programs because they attract migrants and then this corrodes native support for welfare spending. Right. Do, I, do I have that right? Yeah, you have okay. it right, yeah. So taking people's preferences as they are, I understand that you're advocating this <clears throat> jobs, job rights for all, but then a slightly weaker form of citizenship for immigrants. Right, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And no path to actually citizenship as such. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. So I think I have... Two concerns, two, two concerns and then two follow-up questions. One is, I wasn't, after I read your book, the idea, um, and seeing the idea that migrants were attracted for welfare benefits, I did some research on the mm-hmm, migration, mm-hmm. I think that claim seems pretty much debunked, that migrants are coming for jobs, not welfare benefits. I mean, after the uh, house, pricing crash, um, house price crash in the USA, immigrants from, my, uh, from yeah. Mexico totally fell down because they were coming for the construction jobs and those dried up. It seems to me that people go for jobs, not welfare. So that's one point. Two, Can I answer this point first? Yes, yes, please. Because I think that we need to, to be very precise in that. Mm-hmm. I did not say in the book that they come from welfare benefits. Okay. I think it's wrong because people do come from jobs and they, you know, they actually work. Like 90, 99% mm-hmm. of migrants work. And we know that even within the European Union, their contribution through taxes is higher, much higher because they're younger people. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So much higher than what they receive in, mm-hmm. in benefits. Mm-hmm. My point was when I was talking about the negative selection, I was, my point was the following, is that migrants with lower skills, when they have a choice between a society which actually guarantees the minimal, minimal income, much better than the other, like the US, for example, which doesn't guarantee mm-hmm. to such extent as Sweden or Germany do, they actually tend to go to countries, not because they actually expect welfare benefit to receive when they got there, but because they know that the floor for them is guaranteed by a more welfare-oriented state. 
I'm not sure. I didn't you see? see I so it's not actually I go there because I want to get the welfare benefit. I go there because I know that I would never fall below the level X, which is twice the level that I have in my country. You can send me the references for okay. that level. Or okay. I will park that. You can send me the references. Okay, so then I'm totally with but you. But why do high-skilled people then tend to go to very unequal countries? Because they expect actually to end up like why do Indian you know this is a famous example of the of the failure of the German of the German green card system, mm. because of course people there went to the U.S. You send me yeah. the references yeah. back. Okay. okay, now right. So I recognize there's this backlash to immigration. I'm totally with you, and I think that we have two options. Then we can either tackle the xenophobia or we forfeit the economic benefits of migration mm. and corrode migrants' rights. And then I have two questions. What is it? Why, why should we take people's preferences as they are yeah. when I think we know that they can vary both over time and globally? And I, I don't accept this idea that resistance to immigration is inevitable. And let me give you four yeah, reasons yeah. for that claim. One is that looking at the data, we've seen that support for immigration has grown dramatically in the UK. Half the country now positively supports it, according to an Ipsos Mari poll. Secondly, public support for the Muslim ban fell after mm-hmm. widespread critical media and mobilization. A really nice you mean paper in on the that. US, yeah. Yes, there's a really nice paper. I can show you that from mm-hmm. Lauren Collingwood. Uh, thirdly, a vast majority of Europeans support taking in more refugees. Another example I'd like to give you is Spain where I know mm-hmm. you like to go. Spain has experienced mass migration and economic crises, yeah, yeah, course, but it yeah. lacks a far-right, a strong far-right party. Yeah. And, and then we can also give other alternative explanations for this backlash to immigration or Brexit. You know, the austerity. So there are plenty of research papers saying, you know, all this is triggered by economic insecurity and it's not about immigration at all. So that is why I don't think pe- we should take preferences as they are. Point one. The second concern... You're back to agency. Mm. Second concern, Branka, is I wonder that your policy suggestion of jobs rights for all but no civic rights, Mm -hmm. I wonder, will it really ease the animosity and resistance to immigration? So my concern and my concern is one is doesn't it have the objection? Doesn't it have the xenophobia wrong? Because isn't many of their concerns about them stealing our jobs? It's not about them having civic rights, it's them stealing our jobs. And so there, so, so I don't know how we engage with that. And my other concern is, isn't there a danger that temporary migration will only exacerbate the secluded nature of immigrants, uh, whether they're not integrating yeah. in society? Are we compounding the problem? I mean, you know, one, one theory, because I, I was interested in this data, and I was like, you know, why, why is it that we now have growing support for immigrants? And one theory I saw is that actually the East Europe migrants who came here after 2004, they now have roots and communities have come to interact with them, they've come to see them as their neighbours and they've become much more familiar. So this is why I'm an optimist about uh, immigration, Branko. And and I worry that your policy could could undermine um, xenophobia. Okay, I mean, on on this issue, I think that there are more uh, sort of, if I may say so, more valid critique than the the previous. because it's it's a very, it's a very difficult issue. Yes, and I, totally I, I know agree. it less than the other two. Mm. Uh, so let me then start with: uh, uh, Should we really take preferences as given? Mm. Uh, I think that's it's a good point. Actually, maybe we actually a little bit different from the agency before, because mm. in my opinion, the agency before was not able to actually fight against the the underlying structural forces. Here, it's maybe a little bit different because it's really an issue of perception and opinion. So maybe you can actually fight back. 
Uh, it could be, for example, in the UK, I don't know what is motivated, what has motivated this uh, sort of some change in the attitudes toward migrants. Maybe that's, as you said, maybe because they got actually now mm -hmm. more absorbed. Uh, maybe that's a reaction to Brexit. Maybe that actually people who have really been so much appalled or unhappy about Brexit are now want to show explicitly that they want migrants and so on. But I would question a little bit uh, the facts and that because despite the fact what people say, mm. what you what you actually see in reality in, in Europe, you have you see that there was a backlash in Germany after, of course, we know that one million which were accepted. We see that France under Macron is actually going for a policy which is much less liberal towards migrants than before. Italy obviously had Salvini until very recently, and generally speaking, it, Italy is against migration. That's, I think, very clear. Uh, I will come to Spain, which is a very good example. Mm. But I want to say that I was <clears throat> recently, and, and mm. so over the years, mm. uh, particularly in France and Italy, I really see when I talk to people and mm. when you go to conferences mm. and all that, that they see migration as an existential issue. And I'm not really uh, uh, diminishing the importance. So mm -hmm. they see migration as really undermining their way of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I so, don't deny this. I don't yeah. deny this. So package. I'm really not sure that actually uh, we can uh, uh, sort of very much change these attitudes. And then why? I, uh, that's why I actually mm -hmm. took the attitudes as given. Mm -hmm. Now, your second argument is a very strong one. Are we not going actually not to solve the problem? Because mm -hmm. we say the attitudes are given, but we say, okay, fine, you guys can come migrate. Mm -hmm. can come for five years, you get a job, but that's not really going to solve the, you know, resentment. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, th I totally see that point, and I think there is lots of validity to that point. However, I, you know, I think that you might have a little bit of a less of a resentment because you would actually say, well, first, these people came here because there was a job available. Secondly, they cannot compete on wages because they have to be treated equally like the others. And third, you might feel, well, they are not going at least to take, I mean, from the migrant, from the mm -hmm. uh, uh, domestic population or from the xenophobic domestic population mm -hmm. point of view, they are not going to take away social services from me and now they will be gone. So maybe they would be less negatively disposed toward migrants under that condition. How, how does it affect the, the construction workers or the builders who worry that migrants are taking our jobs? So, you know, the people who are on short-term contracts, you know, how does it, I don't see how it, even if they're only there for five years, they could still, you know, they people, still, yes. people could still And they would be replaced them. by new people. Yeah, yes, people could still No, no they would represent them. competition mm -hmm. for the trades in which they would come. Mm. So that for construction worker, obviously they would uh, represent competition mm. despite the fact that there would be no undercutting of wages. Mm. But I'm actually saying that from other people, from people who walk in London and go from one meeting to another mm. and see the construction workers, as I do. Actually, mm. when I hear the many of them speak mm. Russian, for mm. example. Mm. So I see these construction workers. Actually, many of them actually speak Serbian. I heard them also. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, many, of, twice I've heard it. So uh, the, the other people there mm. might actually feel less resentful of, of them because they say, well, they are here for a temporary period and they will go back home. But if, there, if, there, if there's a constant flow of migrants, what difference does it make to a job as long as, you know, as long as someone perceives them as taking it, it doesn't matter which person it is, whether their name is Harry You don't or... face the existential conflict then. 
because they would I think be you're less I think people yes. would, if they don't interact if they're not their neighbours if you don't know them you're more likely to perceive them as the no, other no I agree but how I, does someone become the I, other I agree with that point I, I, that's a very good point and I as agree. the and as yes. the economist and yes. as the economist my understanding my understanding is that the benefits of immigration are even greater when it's the second generation because their children really perform well you know it's the children of immigrants who you know score much much better no, and then, if you only have them for five years you're missing out on all that no no I agree with that I think actually I agree with that but I think there is the first step is that big mountain that you have to climb and that mountain is composed of people who currently don't like migration because they really feel that it is going in the long run or medium mm-hmm. run to actually change the way of life you know they will have obviously that very xenophobic theory mm-hmm. of le grand remplacement mm-hmm. in France so there that exists now I totally agree with you of course I, I mean I my opening section several paragraphs in the in the book talk precisely about the benefits of migration yes yes so there you know, is I recognize that, yeah. and that's why actually I started I, I start really by recognizing all of that because mm. it is like economics 101 yeah, yeah, you know mm. I mean if you really deny the benefits of migration then you should really stop any migration within England if you divide, uh, further deny it, then you should stop it within London so it's totally logical but I'm really faced with that huge block mm. and I say and as you know actually as I say well there is this huge block and one way to maybe solve this block now is to give some sort of a, a how should I say uh, a sweetening mm. to the people who really don't like migrants but telling them no look these guys are not going to change your real life because they would not be here forever so that's my argument I don't know. Anyway, so, it's, so, it's, so you have Branco's Emirates immigration program well, yes, except, of course, uh, yeah, yeah, no, yes, that's true. Except, that, well, the, you know, the, that program, it has, to, uh, well, of course, the difference is that you don't take their passports and you don't read them, you know, the okay, way they treat them. Okay, that's good. Thanks, Brancho. Yeah. No, uh, well, I know it's the ironic thing, but uh, uh, it's still a plus, you know. And secondly, that program has a plus in terms of global poverty and global inequality. Yes, because no, these I'm people totally obviously you, yeah. Yeah, make much more money. I, but no, uh, no, wait, wait, sorry, sorry, Branco. The the plot, the the reduction in global inequality is not due to the program. It's just due to allowing immigration. That's it's right. not no, sorry, sorry. No, no, but it's so let's not let's no, not no, no, confuse, no, no. But it maintains that advantage. Well, okay. So allowing compare, immigration reduces inequality. Right, we both but compare, agree. But it's not because of the draconian policy. No, no. But there is an advantage. Let me just put this very okay. clearly. Yes. And you know that. But that's for the listeners. For the listener, yes, yes. Uh, that this proposal still does reduce to some extent both poverty, global poverty, and global inequality. Mm. Much less than total freedom yeah, of course, migration. Of but it is, of course, uh, better than having Fortress Europe. So that's my point. So yeah. my, I think my only contention with this and the previous points is I think you're being too pessimistic. Uh, but let's move it to that. Let's move it. No, no. Back. But let me just answer yeah, okay. that. I agree with that because we are obviously you are on both um, last two points. We mm. had the first point, mm. global communism. Second mm. point mm. was trade unions. Yes. The third point, immigration. On the last two points, you were of course more optimistic. I think there is a difference, as I said, in your optimistic take. On the first one, I think you're fighting the optimism fights against the structural forces which are overwhelming. In the second case. It fights against perceptions and view, views which are more malleable. And I agree that in that sense they, are, they can be more easily changed. And it could be also that they are driven by austerity policies, by lack of jobs, by fear about your secular stagnation, also by fear 
or being overtaken by the new middle class from Asia with whom they have to compete with jobs. So I agree with all of that. It's a little bit different than the, the, the first point. Okay, Branka. Right. Now my fourth and final okay. point. And then you're almost off the hook. Almost off the hook, Branka. Right. So I know you're concerned about global inequality. And I think if we are concerned about global inequality, won't climate breakdown disproportionately affect people in the global south? Um, and so don't we need to radically reduce carbon emissions? So I actually saw um, this really nice paper that you actually linked <laughs> to, um, this new paper by, I'll mispronounce the name, but Noah Diffenbaugh and Marshall Burke. And they suggest that climate change makes the global south poorer, reducing India's oh, yes, GDP yeah. by 30%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they say that climate change has reduced life expectancy in India. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I was curious how you respond to that because the book despite being about inequality seems to miss that and that seems to be a key yeah. cause of global inequality and that's going to get worse okay the book really doesn't deal with that mm. simply because i uh, for two reasons mm. first i don't know sufficiently well things about global inequality mm. secondly i i'm basically and of course you know that from my blog and mm. other things mm. i'm basically technological optimist on that so we have changed yeah, roles but this now. is why you're yeah. so center-right yeah, yeah, you know this is what the center-right people say oh technology will fix it I do think actually that lots of, not everything, but lots of that could be fixed, not by technology, mm. by incentives, you know, mm. the incentives which then would lead to technology replacing the, I mean, green technology replacing the, the you know, dark, what this is called, gray or whatever technology. So, okay, but, that, but leaving that aside, mm. I, uh, I, I do think that actually uh, some measures which were, which have to do deal with pricing and with technological change are necessary, mm -hmm. but I'm not and I totally agree also with what people say and it seems reasonable that actually it would affect disproportionately poor people in the south. You agree that climate change yes. will increase, and not only that, mm -hmm. it would actually affect people. That's the irony of the situation who are the least responsible for that. Yes, of course. So you would actually have to affect people. The uh, the, the effects would be the worst for people who have contributed the least to the problem. Mm. Uh, where I don't agree with people, as you know, that people about from the degrowth movement, right. is that I don't agree simply on a, on a, on a, uh, essentially on, on back of the envelope calculations. Mm -hmm. If they really want to keep the current level of GDP or to increase it to a, to a relatively small percentage, then they have a really very clear trade-off, in my opinion. Either dramatic decline of real incomes mm -hmm. in the north, mm -hmm. which would then reduce the emissions, yes. or if you don't want to do that, then keep the poverty as it is more or less unchanged in the poor world. And where my sort of um, objecting to what they're saying is they don't want, and I understand politically mm -hmm. that they want to do that, mm -hmm. but they should really come out uh, out of, you know, open and put it on the table and say, these are the alternatives. These are the options, rather. Mm. Uh, and they don't want to do that because obviously it's not going to be popular if they start actually saying, well, you know, for if you really want to do something about climate change, we should really cut your income by, you know, 20% or 30%. And, you know, and so only cutting, let me just say that. If you were to increase price of airplane tickets, you know, it, we all are now on the mm -hmm. internet looking for airplane tickets to go from London to Barcelona mm -hmm. for 38 mm -hmm. pounds. Mm -hmm. You know, put people in a situation where they have to pay 380 pounds. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not going to be a popular decision. Mm -hmm. You can do that. You can actually put taxation of 1,000% tomorrow. Uh, who is going to support that? So they don't want really openly to say that. They do actually actions and other things, but when you are actually pushing them to say that openly, they could actually introduce like three-day uh, uh, work week. You know, there are many things they could, but they don't. So that's why I don't agree with them. So I think two things. They I are think... not for open. 
Mm. I think you make an interesting point, Barbara. And here I would like to highlight, can I highlight the despondency trap again? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, for example, I think there's really nice research showing that even if you increase people's awareness of climate change, they might not still mobilise on it because they're despondent, they don't think we can do anything about it. But then, now recently, we've seen this surge of activism, these Friday yeah, yeah. strikes, you know, across, every, across so many cities. People are, you know, and people see other people going on strike. People see governments making advances, in, enacting environmental laws, and people become involved, emboldened. They yeah, get out yeah. of their despondency trap. And people are pushing for much more radical action on climate change. And so that's why, you know, partly I, I recognise that uh, collective mobilisation can push government policies in a more progressive direction which could help reduce global inequality now how we do that of course technology will be part of the mix of course incentives will be part of the mix but i think for you for your next book if you're writing on inequality again i want to see some kind of discussion of how we tackle that that's all no that's a, it's a good point actually it goes together with the other points that mm. you make and uh, gradually as i said gradually your uh agency principle becomes, uh, uh, to me actually, becomes more, um, uh, how should I say, realistic or more, more likely to, to be successful. Because it is true here that you need a massive, first, awareness, mm. massive action mm -hmm. to bring that awareness and to that's creation. Happening. That's happening no, that's, right now. I totally agree. And actually, you have, of course, uh, we talked about that before, you have precedence. It's actually for gender equality that actually happened also through massive uh, uh, a, um, uh, homosexuality yes. and AIDS. Mm -hmm. It was also massive, yes. uh, popular mm -hmm. outpouring of, you know, whatever activity. Mm -hmm. So that's actually the first step. The next step was actually to translate that into political decisions, which would be, as I said, for, for the reasons that I just said, which would affect our daily lives. Yes. And there, that would be much more difficult mm -hmm. because, of course, we would still like to travel for, for, for mm -hmm. 38 pounds. Mm -hmm. We will not be able to do that. So that would be the second step. But there is no second step unless there is the first step. So I agree on that. Ranko, I always like to end a podcast with a guest saying how much they agree with me. So we should... I see. <laughs> okay, let's stop it here. No more disagreements. Ranko, thank you so much. And I urge everyone to buy the book because it's really fascinating. Absolutely wonderful. Ranko, this has been a real treat. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ice. It is phenomenal. <laughs> you actually bring out... Well, I'm not sure the best, but you bring the most interesting out of every guest. Thank you. <laughs>